When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, everyone. David Kern here. Just wanted to let you know about our friends over at Belmont Abbey College who would like to invite all current high school students to attend its summer program, SCOLA. Students will spend a week on their beautiful North Carolina campus just outside of Charlotte, engaging in great book seminars with other young men and women from around the country. You get a chance to go whitewater rafting, hiking, and visit, of course, the city of Charlotte in addition to all the academic things that are going on. More importantly than all that stuff, though, students will have the opportunity to build lasting friendships and have the time for reflection and prayer. Experience leisure in the best sense this summer at Belmont Abbey College's SCOLA program. For more, visit belmontabbeycollege.edu slash SCOLA. That's belmontabbeycollege.edu slash S-C-H-O-L-A. All right, and with that, here is today's episode. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 19, Six Weeks In. Today's proverb is unattributed, though it is English in origin. I'll read it twice. The cobbler's children have no shoes. Once more. The cobbler's children have no shoes. The truth of this proverb hits preachers and priests, ministers of the gospel, particularly hard. Because if the cobbler's children have no shoes, what is it that the preacher's children do not have? We are all, I am sure, familiar with the stereotypes and cliches that attend the expression, preacher's kids. The first time I became aware of preacher's kids, I was around 10 years old and I was living in Missouri. 
My family had just joined a mainline church. Doesn't matter which one. And there was a parsonage that was a stone's throw from the church itself. And on a certain Thursday afternoon, my parents had a meeting to talk with the pastor of this church about some matter I don't remember what. And it was decided that my sister and I would go over to the parsonage where the preacher's 15-year-old son would look after us for the afternoon or just a few hours, maybe. And the minister or the preacher's son was a reputable-looking fellow. My parents were particular about who they entrusted my sister and I to, so far as babysitting childcare was concerned. And I don't remember the kid's name, but I do remember that he was lanky and he had uh, the look of one who spent a lot of time outdoors working hard. And he told my parents that he raised rabbits or that he had pet rabbits. And so my sister and I went over to the parsonage and into the basement with this 15-year-old preacher's kid and uh, went into his room. And as soon as we walked in, there was the uh, pen that the rabbits were in. But as soon as we walked in, I also noticed that there were numerous posters all over the wall of this kid's bedroom of ladies in lingerie. And at 10, my first reaction was, what if his father found out about this? Because I knew at 10 that this was not right, scandalous. My first thought was, what if his father found out? But I recall, even now, that as soon as this thought occurred to me, another thought occurred, which was, of course his father knows that these posters are on the wall. How could he not? How could his father have never set foot in his bedroom? Of course he knows. And then I realized that his father must have surely made some excuse as for why this was okay, why this was allowable. At the age of 10, even a child understands the absurd excuses that adults make on behalf of their children. And I'm sure that my parents were making um, some absurd excuses on my behalf, and I had heard my friend's parents, even at 10, make ridiculous excuses on their behalf. The cobbler's children have no shoes is about excuse-making. That's what I think is at the heart of this proverb. It's about how we make excuses. The proverb suggests that points upon which parents are strong often create weaknesses in their children 
which they cannot see. The strength of a parent can easily create blind spots in their assessment of their children. So what possible excuse does the cobbler have for not giving his children shoes? I'd like to suggest a few. I'd like to offer a few excuses on behalf of the cobbler. Perhaps excuses that the cobbler gives himself or that the cobbler gives others when they say, your kids have no shoes, why not? The cobbler's children have no shoes, but they can have shoes whenever they like if they'll only ask. The cobbler's children have no shoes, but it's really the fault of the children because they know how to make shoes. I showed them how. The cobbler's children have no shoes, but this is only because the cobbler is working on the perfect pair of shoes for his son. And when these shoes are done, they will last forever. The cobbler's children have no shoes, but they have bread, so they shouldn't complain. The cobbler's children have no shoes, but they have some very nice socks. The cobbler's children have no shoes, but cobblers aren't rich, as you know. The cobbler's children have no shoes, but very few children have shoes. So don't pick on the cobbler just because he's a cobbler. The cobbler's children have no shoes, but there's a good reason. And it is that the cobbler and his wife are very busy serving their community. The cobbler's children have no shoes, but they don't need shoes because they really don't go out much. And finally, the cobbler's children have no shoes, but we're saved by grace alone, not because we give our children shoes. These strike me as some of the most common excuses why the cobbler's children have no shoes. Of course, obviously, we're not just talking about cobblers here, and we're not just talking about preachers. We're talking about men in all sorts of trades. The artist's children can't draw. The teacher's kids can't spell. So while these are excuses that are often given by the cobbler, I don't know that they're the real reasons why. I don't think these excuses are worth a whole lot, and I don't think they really get to the heart of the matter. I think one of the real reasons, I think there's two real reasons why the cobbler's children have no shoes. And uh, these two reasons are something of a paradox because they can't both be true, but they might be variously true at different times. Back when there were cobblers, it wasn't that the cobbler wouldn't buy his kids shoes. It's that he wouldn't make them. 
If he's the cobbler, he's probably the only one who can make shoes. There's no one to buy them from. I'll come back to that one in a second. I think the other reason is if the cobbler's kids are going to get shoes, he might have to buy them from another cobbler. And it's somewhat galling for a cobbler to pay another cobbler for what he knows he could do himself. Now, like I said, these two reasons can't both be true. If the cobbler is the only cobbler in town, going back to the first reason, if the cobbler is the only cobbler in town, it means that he has to make his children's shoes at the end of the day. I think a lot of cobblers are tired of making shoes at the end of the day. They're sick of it. It's what they do for a living. And when the day is over, the day is over. Tired of making shoes. I want to do something else. I need a break. I need something in my life which is not making shoes. So when I'm done making shoes that I sell, I don't want to make shoes that I'm not going to sell. I think this is a real temptation. As a literature teacher, there are often evenings when my children want a story. I say, I'm tired. I'm telling stories. I've told stories all day. My voice is tired. Read a story on your own. The literature teacher's children have no stories. Or there's the other reason, which is that it kind of galls the cobbler to pay someone else to do what he knows he could do. So he just keeps putting it off. And like I said, I think this proverb hits preachers and teachers very hard. I know... The cliches and the stereotypes about preachers kids but i think a lot of those are true for teachers kids as well the horror stories i've collected over the years from friends across the country about board members children are legion at the same time uh i would venture this prediction at the average classical Christian school in this country, staff and faculty kids account for some of the brightest and most obedient, and some of the unhappiest and most disobedient as well. And I would also suspect um, that there is a good number of cobbler's children out there who have the finest shoes in town. So I don't believe that the proverb is meant to account for every cobbler's child but in as much as a cobbler's child has no shoes, it is entirely related to their father's profession. There's something in this proverb which is about excuse-making. The heart of this proverb, I believe, is the art of the excuse. The cobbler certainly has an intriguing perspective on the world. The long-term cobbler, I mean. The man who's been a cobbler for many years. He deals with people primarily on the subject of shoes. 
He's an observer of human nature insofar as human beings need shoes. The cobbler observes people come in, how they're dressed, how they speak, and what kind of shoes they want. He observes the kind of people who demand cheap shoes, or expensive shoes, or cheap shoes quickly. Or the kind of people who are most apt to not pay or to complain about the product and demand a lower price once they're done. Everybody in every line of work comes to figure out human nature by way of their trade. So, I mean, this is true of the preacher. It's true of the teacher as well. Teaching is the study of what kind of parenting works best. That's what teaching is. When I started as a teacher 15 years ago, I thought that teaching was about the teacher's relationship with the student. I think I probably carried that belief for many years. But over the last several years, maybe over the last two or three years, I don't think that's true. Not anymore. I think that teaching is about the teacher's relationship with the student's parents by way of the student's. Teaching's a fascinating job. I'm sure every job is fascinating if you just stick with it long enough. Any job is fascinating once you figure out how that job lets you understand human nature. My first job was as a bagger of groceries. Figure out some interesting things about human nature bagging groceries. It wasn't really until I got my first job and I bagged, you know, 5,000 people's groceries over the course of a year that I started thinking about human nature, how human beings were, what human beings liked, what they were like. And every job I've ever had since then ultimately offers the same, some new perspective on how people are. Every year a teacher meets 50 new students, give or take. And in September, you learn their names, you observe your students, you talk to them. And as a literature teacher, I try to get them to care about old things. I try to engage them in conversation. You listen to the way your students talk to each other. You give them writing assignments, difficult ones, easy ones. And you begin forming a picture of how they think and you judge them by their works, by their obedience and disobedience. And then at some point later in the year, you meet their parents and it begins to make sense why they are the way they are. And this is what every year is like for a teacher. 50 new students, 50 new sets of parents to observe. And six months in, you can't not 
begin forming judgments of what kind of parenting leads to what kind of children. If you've invested even a modicum in your students' lives, you start asking, what kind of parenting makes for happy, obedient children? Where do happy people come from? I think that's one of the questions that great literature seeks to answer, to give you guidelines on how to sort this question out in whatever era you live in. But there's a sense in which the very task of teaching, the very task of educating is a bit like great literature in and of itself. Teaching great literature involves figuring out where happy teenagers come from and seeing how happy teenagers turn out in the end. I don't have relationships and friendships with everybody who's ever graduated. All my students, I mean. But I hear stories about what goes on beyond the world of high school. There are some surprises. There are not a lot of surprises. There are some, though. As a teacher, you observe mothers and daughters, fathers and their sons. And you realize how hard it is to have self-awareness. I think that's one of the most important lessons that's learned if you ply a certain trade for long enough is you realize how hard it is for people to step outside themselves and to try to see the world from another person's perspective. Or self-awareness is just seeing yourself as other people see you. And one of the ways that plying a certain trade for long enough helps you develop a kind of self-awareness, or it should, is that given long enough, you become familiar with people's excuses. Even the humble plumber begins to, six months in, notice the kind of excuses that people have for why they're Drains are clogged. The dentist is a great collector of excuses. The doctor is a great collector of excuses. The police officer. How many times do you think cops pull people over? Ask the driver of an automobile how much you, you had to drink and get the response, well, a glass of wine with dinner. How many times do cops hear that? Every week. If you haven't had anything to drink, you say, I've had nothing. If you had any amount to drink, glass of wine, bottle of wine, case of wine. I had a glass of wine with dinner. Like you're some kind of aristocrat who always has a glass of wine with dinner as a matter of course. Self-awareness trains you to find your own excuses. I want to say that teaching 
is the study of excuse making and responsibility taking. But I don't think this is true only of teaching. This strikes me as what every profession ultimately trains you to do, to hear the excuses of others and to hopefully reflect back on your own excuses. So the cobbler's children have no shoes is a call to sympathize with all the people in your life who suffer because you make excuses. The cobbler's children have no shoes is a call to hear your excuses with the ears of other people. The cobbler's children have no shoes is a request that you see the world from the perspective of all the people who depend on you and that you pity them because your excuses lead to their suffering. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.